Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today, I'm talking to Tony Chacal about supper clubs, not only what they are and how you could start one with some friends, but also the political, social, and cultural issues they bring up. It's a good conversation, so let me read Tony's biography and then we can get to it. Tony Chacal is a philosopher specializing in social and political philosophy, aesthetics, critical race theory, and environmental philosophy. He's published articles on the concept of place and environmental identity and environmental ethics, on street art and law in the Journal of Aesthetics and Art Criticism, and on autonomy and the politics of food choice in the Journal of Agricultural and Environmental Ethics. He's taught philosophy at the University of Georgia, Missouri State University, and Slippery Rock University, and is now a visiting assistant professor at Miami University and lives in Cincinnati. Forthcoming publications include an article advancing a novel theory of collective autonomy and another on the nature-culture dualism in environmental aesthetics. So now, here's my conversation with Tony Chacal. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, we discussed uh, by email, was this idea of supper clubs, which I think is uh, really interesting. But before we jump into that, can you maybe tell me um, what you take that term to mean so that we're all on the same page? Yeah, so... There can be different forms of supper clubs. The one um, I'm talking about is basically a group of friends uh, meeting about once a month or so, depending on uh, the frequency that they choose. Uh, a group of people, typically no larger than 10, uh, that gets together and uh, organizes uh, you know, a dinner and they can structure it in uh, a variety of ways. But it's essentially friends coming together to uh, enjoy food and enjoy each other's company. Um, you can also have supper clubs that are hosted by chefs or uh, bartenders or a combination of them where you pay a certain amount of money and then you go eat, but you don't really cook and you don't really control the menu. That's like another model that... Um, is certainly interesting, but not quite the one um, we're discussing today. Sure. So how it, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's, a, at that, for that second one, the line starts to blur between that and, you know, a test kind of pop-up restaurant or, you know, right. some of these other terms you might have. But for this idea of a supper club, um, what differentiates that between, you know, me just going over to your house and having some pizza? Well, typically it's uh, more than just a, a friend or two. And it, um, will unfold according to a little bit more uh, thoughtfulness. So you might uh, kind of randomly say, he, hey, Ian, what are you doing tonight? Come over to my house for pizza. And certainly we'd eat together and could have a good time. But it's a, a difference in the way you approach it when you think of it uh, as a, a club with membership uh, that operates according to uh, rules and procedures and then, you know, to bring it to the philosophical domain, uh, that operates according to perhaps a certain kind of uh, ethics or ethical intent, a certain kind of uh, aim to achieve something cultural, uh, perhaps uh, political constraints. Uh, we can, we'll, we'll unpack all of this, but, you know, where the food comes from, culture, how it's prepared. Uh, and then um, the intent to 
basically engage friendship and engage food, food and friendship in a more contrived way, in a way where there's more uh, intentionality uh, that goes into it. Right. Yeah. And I like the idea of both uh, <laughs> contrivance and intentionality is uh, two different ways to look at the same thing. Right. So before, you know, I'm, we talk about the philosophical parts of this, what uh, made you interested in this topic? Have you yourself been in a supper club? Yeah. So um, it, while I was teaching at Missouri State in Springfield, Missouri from 2017 to 2019, I uh, hosted, uh, started and hosted a supper club with the friends that I made there, and it lasted about a year and a half or so. And I had, um, I think the phrase supper club got in my head because I have a buddy back in Atlanta who's a bartender mixologist, and yeah, he was doing more of the kind of pop-up supper clubs, which I always found really interesting, but a little out of my budget most of the time. So I wanted to start something around uh, food that was a little more affordable and a little bit more, I guess, DIY rather than, you know, getting a famed chef to come in or or visiting something like that. Yeah. And so what was the mechanics of how yours in particular worked? Well, I partly started it because I had moved to Springfield from Athens, Georgia, before I had finished my PhD, and I was trying to, you know, meet people and uh, get to know people. And so uh, after I met a few people, I thought it would be a good way to get to know them a little more and to, to get to know them in a context in which we could have maybe better conversations and better exchanges than what you might have if you just go out to a bar or a restaurant and uh, meet somebody there. Because when you're in the process of uh, you know planning and cooking and conceiving things, uh, I think there's a better exchange of ideas and a better, more fertile, fertile grounds to build friendships uh, on that basis. Sure. Um, so, you know, uh, beating around the bush aside, uh, let's think about the philosophical implications. I can see why it would be fun to do, but what are the philosophical implications of supper clubs? I think, um, you know, going back to how you uh, structure it, you know, I think that there are, I've outlined a few categories of things to consider. Uh, As I mentioned before, ethics, politics, and culture. And so different groups can structure this however they want. But, you know, one one question would be, well, what do we want from this supper club? Is it just uh, an opportunity to eat together or are we trying to do something more than merely eat and have a good time? And so with the supper club I started, it was more in the vein of the latter, doing something more than just eating and having a good time. Really, it was about coming up with a a kind of normative framework for how, uh, you know, food should be consumed among friends. So um, I wanted to put a number of constraints on uh, the supper club to help develop it. uh, I was the only vegan uh, in the in the supper club, but we made it a vegan supper club, <laughs> especially since I you know started it, and I I, I wouldn't be able to participate if it uh, wasn't that. So uh, something like, what food you're uh, will the group be eating, and why will it be eating that uh, type of food rather than uh, meat or something else, uh, might fall under the ethical category. Sure, uh, the category the category of ethics. Um, 
another uh, another aspect falling under that category would be: uh, is the food going to be local, or is that not really a consideration? So the the idea of the food being vegan and uh, as much as we can, as much as what is possible, the food being local were two examples of considerations that fell under the uh, the ethics category. Now, as it as it happened. Uh, Missouri is Springfield, Missouri, which is in the southwest part of the state, in the Ozarks, is surrounded by farmland. And they had wonderful farmers markets multiple times a week in, in this town, Springfield, some of which were um, Amish and Mennonite farmers, some of which uh, Springfield happened to have a pretty substantial Asian population. So there were Asian farmers. So you would be able to get certain kinds of bok choy and other kinds of vegetables that you wouldn't be able to get from other farmers there. And then as it happened, I lived um, I lived two blocks from a CSA, uh, a place called Urban Roots. Um, and although I didn't participate in the CSA aspect of it, they had a farm stand, which is kind of like a little shack with a walk-in where they wash all their veggies and basically, you could go in there from nine to five into the walk-in, take what you want, and they had a Dropbox for money, and it was you know totally on the honor system. And uh, although I'm a person used to living in bigger cities, uh, and that, and that's what I prefer, I really loved this aspect of Springfield yeah. of, of how much local food was available, and the fact that uh, I mean sometimes I would ha- I would start preparing stuff and be like, oh, I don't have any uh, basil or sage. And I could go to the walk-in at the farm stand and just pick it up and drop the money in and then go back and cook it. So just the idea of being able to con- uh, cook and consume food that was grown uh, a couple blocks from uh, my house was something that I really valued about living there and something that I really wanted to incorporate into the supper club. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, both of those kinds of issues because uh, it occurs to me that they uh, can be thought of as sort of general topics that you would think about anytime um, or specifically through this sort of lens of the supper club. So like starting with local food, um, you know, there's lots of literature. I'm, I mean, I've written some of it. <laughs> I know you're very familiar with it on uh, local food, uh, sort of the eth- ethical implications or ethical norms about eating locally if possible. But that's in kind of like a general sense. But it occurs to me that specifically if you're trying to form a sort of like a little micro community, this little club of people eating that there might be a reason to eat locally on top of that, right? That you are trying to get a sense of people who are actually there, uh, actually in a place together. I mean, that's an increasingly uh, rare commodity nowadays. Um, And to sort of highlight that, to celebrate it and, you know, make it more real, like eating food that's also grown by somebody who lives near you guys uh, seems like it might have uh, sort of a separate reason in addition to things like, you know, food miles and uh, fossil fuel consumption and supporting local economies. Indeed. I I think there are a number of reasons to uh, support local ag. Um, I mean, to me, you won't necessarily, I mean, I would say to me, the flavors that are uh, sensible tend to taste better when they're local. Now, that that also depends on what kind of uh, vegetable or crop you're talking about. In some cases, it may not make a difference in terms of taste, but it still make, may make a difference in terms of, you know, mileage and other, uh, you know, ethical concerns. But yeah, um, you know, eating food in a place that is of that place uh, is, is an interesting idea insofar as you get to experience that place 
uh, and uh, through the food, and not just you know not not just experience it as a bystander, but experience it as a as an eater, as a consumer, uh, taking into account this notion of you are what you eat. So if you are what you eat, and what you eat is from the area that you're in, then you have a more intimate connection to the place and area and soil and water and environment that you're in. Uh, and that's the case whether or not you're living your, you know, in the place where you live and you're consuming food there, or if you're traveling abroad and you want to get a sense of the food there, you're going to get a better sense of that food, I would think, if that food is grown in that area, if it, if it, if it comes from that area, if it comes from the, the soils and the waters and the air and so forth. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's part of creating uh, this consummate experience that you're doing, right? Like you could... Like you could imagine a supper club like this where it's, uh, you know, asynchronous. We're going to have an asynchronous supper club where uh, you'll, Tony, you'll eat something, uh, you know, you'll eat this pasta dish uh, that we read about recently. Um, and then at some other point during the week, I also will uh, buy myself in my house and eat it in your house. And, you know, each, you know, 10 other people will do that. And then we'll send some emails back and forth that we can read uh, at our leisure. And, you know, it feels to me that you are, uh, in that experience of me sitting by myself at that table, I'm losing something, right? I'm losing the particularity of it, right? That being at a place where I can only uh, do it this one time, I can only do it with these people, um, you know, it becomes this more alienated kind of, uh, you know, fungible experience. And likewise, you know, if you're leaning into that sort of the aesthetics of this consummate experience, but also, I mean, this isn't the place to have a complicated meta-ethical discussion about how ethics and aesthetics are connected, but let's just say they're connected. Uh, <laughs> and uh, certainly, certainly right, and that having, emphasizing that this can only happen at this time with these people at this place uh, by eating local food, I think is just, you know, further heightening the sort of consummate experience that is taste. Indeed. And um, as I was saying, not only does it create a more intimate, embodied connection to the place, but um, most of the other people that were in the supper club with me didn't even know about this place, Urban Farms, and had never been there. And so it's a way to familiarize yourself with the ag scene or the agricultural production uh, in the town or city or nearby area that you're in. And uh, again, that connects back to the, the support of the local economy. Um, so yeah, there, there really are a number of, of reasons. Yeah. And then thinking about the idea about the diet, uh, again, like with local food, I mean, there's separately sort of an abstract general argument about, uh, whether or not our diets are ethically significant. And if so, what sort of demands that places on us? And if it places demands, what diet then is best? I mean, you're vegan, so am I, um, like to what extent is that, you know, is that morally required or what um, is like a general conversation. But then in this context, I think it's interesting to think about uh, hospitality, a concept that Lisa Heltke talks about a lot in Philosophy of Food, uh, about when you're eating with other people, how should that um, affect what you choose to eat, right? Or, you know, if you're having a supper club and we're all going to eat the same thing, um, if Tony is vegan, but only Tony is vegan. Does that mean that since he's in the minority, we ought to, or he ought to just eat what everybody else is eating because that's in maybe in one sense more fair? 
or should everybody try vegan food uh because tony is vegan because he his diet is uh morally significant to him whereas people who are being omnivores um probably probably they aren't uh being omnivores for moral reasons but just sort of like as an inertial way they were raised or something um you know or should or should we break this concept of us eating the same foods and have different versions of it like it seems like that kind of conversation becomes uh, has a different ethical cast when you're thinking about eating together indeed and i think that's part of what people who would start a supper club would need to determine in terms of their you know their constitution or something like that for their supper club something that speaks to how they want to structure it what kind of ethical uh, constraints and cultural constraints and uh, political constraints they want to put out put on it and it's definitely something that if someone were interested in starting a supper club, I would say you should discuss that at the beginning. Um, although I didn't discuss it at the beginning with this club, we kind of started <laughs> doing it and then certain things came up along the way. Sure. So uh, one of the things that came up along the way is, uh, okay, so just to back it up a little bit, um, some, of, some other cultural and ethical things that, that we incorporated, uh, aspects that we incorporated, were things like generally we want to dress up. So the idea of like wearing certain, not super formal attire, but you know, be on your A game, come correct with it and uh, make a, make a good appearance. That was part of it. But one of the things that came up uh, when somebody else hosted is that um, she wanted to use uh, like paper plates and plastic wear, like many families do around the holidays because they don't want a big stack of dishes to wash. And that certainly started a conversation because I was kind of resistant to that. And the idea is that, um, you know, if we want to make a supper club, the sort of a, a, a kind of like normative experiment, an experiment in food and normativity, uh, what would be the reasons that we would say people should avoid uh, plastic wear or single use wear? I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, uh, wasteful the consumption of plastic. There's a long, uh, you know, many litany of reasons why we would want to uh, avoid that. But then also the 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 um, the use of plastic utensils with food to me kind of took away from the what we were striving for with with uh, cooking really good food, uh, dressing up, having a certain kind of decorum about it. I thought that the plasticware sort of undercutted that and that it had inimical implications for the environment. So that's something that we, you know, discussed and eventually decided that we, you know, wouldn't use. Um, uh, but it, but certainly an example of, of something where, you know, people might have different takes on it as they might have with the question of uh, meat consumption. I mean, for you and me, probably, uh, the normative idea is to avoid eating meat for lots of different reasons. But um, certainly it's plausible for other people to have a normative account of food in which they do consume meat, perhaps under other kinds of ethical constraints. Maybe it's local, maybe they hunted it, maybe it's free range, etc. So uh, these are the things that I would suggest to people to talk about with the members of your supper club at the beginning so that you can frame, some, so that you can write or frame or determine some kind of like constitution or like idea for the supper club of what the goals with it are and especially what the ethical goals are. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. There was a study done by uh, some restaurant lobbying group or some restaurant, you know, uh, advocacy group. And uh, they published in one of their like trade magazines that if 
even one person in a group of, you know, whatever the largest was that they sampled or experimented with, you know, 20, 30 people, like say from an office, one coworker, um, has a morally required uh, dietary requirement, like they're uh, they halal or kosher or vegan or whatever, um, that everybody will not go to a restaurant that doesn't have an option for that person. So, you know, one person can pull an arbitrarily large number of people away from a restaurant that doesn't seem to be caring for that other person, uh, which is interesting. But it also showed that if they have one labeled option that's labeled as vegan, for example, uh, but it's a bad option. So like it's a steakhouse, but then they say, you know, and we also have a vegan menu, which has a baked potato on it. Uh, <laughs> then that person gets overruled. And if everybody else wants to eat at the steakhouse, they have to, the, this person uh, has to go or, you know, stay home because uh, once it becomes a matter of taste, like, well, I don't want to eat just a baked potato, uh, that then you can get outvoted. Uh, whereas if, it, if they aren't seen to have their identity kind of represented or recognized, uh, then uh, people will not, uh, you know, people will sort of defer to that, which I think was, you know, the lesson there for restaurant owners was have labeled options, even if they're terrible, uh, which is, you know, maybe an evil implication of that, you know, but uh, it seems to me quite interesting that people take for granted um, what the hospitable or polite or sort of pro-social thing to do in that circumstance is. Indeed. And that's certainly a situation that I'm familiar with, and I'm sure you are too. Right. Um, like I said, uh, since I was the host and the one that kind of initiated the whole thing and it was at my house, uh, people were pretty accommodating about the, uh, the, the, the vegan framework. Maybe once in a while someone would, you know, a dessert, maybe they would bring something like their own ice cream or some kind of like side dish. And, and I was perfectly okay with that because, um, you know, I certainly appreciate them, um, uh, you know, adhering during the supper to my uh, uh, ethical constraints and, and cultural and, and political constraints on, on the food. So uh, I'm also willing to make certain, um, you know, allowances or concessions to accommodate what their preferences uh, might be within within certain uh, reasonable limits. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't be as comfortable with someone bringing over their own T-bone steak and eating it while the rest of us are eating um, you know, falafel or something like that. Sure. So what uh, political implications do you see from supper clubs as opposed to uh, just ethical sort of moral aughts? Well, some of them would are kind of connected to the to the ethical. So sure. the issues of uh, animal rights, animal welfare, um, local agriculture, as we were talking about before. Um, but then also maybe these sort of... Uh, those are like the social political issues, but then the sort of inner politics of the club. Um, one of the things that came up was like, okay, so it seems like the person that hosts gets to have a little bit more power and a little bit more kind of say of, of what the menu is and what goes on. Because So let me clarify, by the way, that this wasn't really a, like a potluck type of thing, although there were elements of a potluck, but mainly it was like the host cooking. But as it happened, we had... Um, one of the members in the club uh, had a bar in town in Springfield. And so he was like the kind of mixologist. So he would be the one in charge of coming up with uh, wine pairings. And then he would usually mix up uh, a cool, fancy, tasty cocktail uh, for, well, that would that would pair with the appetizers beforehand. And then his wife would generally be in charge of the uh, desserts. And so 
like I said, neither one of them were vegan, but she was able to come up with some really great um, vegan desserts, including vegan ice cream and vegan pies. And um, I think that was, uh, well, she said as much that it was interesting for her to try to, to make these things for the sake of the club that she probably wouldn't make uh, or, uh, you know, otherwise. But it certainly, you know, uh, after a while, I think people were thinking that maybe I, I had a little bit too much power because it was always at my house. And so <laughs> there was this idea, well, let's change it up. Let's go to this person's house and that person's house and let them have a little bit more of, uh, of the say of uh, what gets eaten and uh, what goes on and so on and so forth. So um, kind of like being in an academic department where you might be with five to 10 people, but it operates like a little political community where uh, direct democracy is the way votes are aggregated and everybody gets an equal vote. And then you kind of work out some kind of collective decision-making uh, procedures or, or pro processes and um, have the supper club unfold according to what is collectively decided. That So that kind of highlights the social political and then the sort of like domestic political or, you know, something like that uh, within the club. Sure. And, you know, one thing to kind of point out uh, is that it's a skill to learn, right? <laughs> if you've ever been to an academic department, you know that some people aren't very good at uh, interpersonal political kind of uh, stuff. And it's a thing that has to be practiced over time. Yeah. Uh, and it's a thing that we don't practice that much, which is sort of another political implication of this, I think. Like if you've read that book, it was written back in the 90s. Uh, the Death of the Bowling League, uh -huh. I'm pretty sure it's called. It's called something very similar to that. I'll put it in the show notes for this uh, episode. But, um, you know, it pointed out that... Our bowling uh, you, itself, is that... Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah that we're kind of losing yeah. these these community connections that we had to other people, the ways that we defined ourselves in relation to one another. So, you know, that you are, all these connections you have to people around you is increasingly uh, atomized that you are just with your immediate family, that you live in a house in the suburbs where you don't know your neighbor's names, you know, you drive to some job far away from where you live, and you don't really engage in many uh, opportunities to build a sense of shared problems, you know, solidarity to help one another with these problems that can move into political action to address things in your community or in your neighborhood, because, you know, there kind of is no social community, right? There's a community, you know, of a group where you can draw a circle around a place, but there isn't a community for itself that can make uh, kind of decisions and, you know, express uh, collective interests. And that that was increasingly true in the nineties. <laughs> it's only it's only gotten more true since then, uh, as you know, social media was invented and we can substitute, uh, you know, virtual friends for actual friends. And then obviously in the last year from twenty twenty, um, you know, our atomization has just gone to some kind of hopefully temporary but hyper overdrive that I think uh, things like the Supper Club or other attempts to reconnect with other people, to have conversations, to start to get to know one another, to share you know, a consciousness about the place where you live, um, in this case, maybe issues around food, which is another reason why uh, local food has a particular significance, I think, that you might, you, know, you might discuss the fact that certain vegetables come earlier and earlier in the year because uh, average temperatures are changing or something is harder to grow now as uh, rainfall is changing, um, or you know the or the you know to be optimistic, maybe the increase of organic options that are available locally, that kind of thing, can help you start to see that other people have similar experiences to you and can build up into something that can be political action from there. 
Absolutely. It's a great point that the the social aspects uh, that are gained through eating together really can't be uh, understated. I was reading an article recently about what the television, the rise of the television in the mid-century did to dinner, to the idea of dinner and what a disruption it was to dinner because now we have TV time during dinner and we have TV dinners and we have TV trays and the the TV itself uh, uh, becomes the sort of uh, the hearth or the locus of the den, dining room or living room, depending on the, the type of uh, uh, house or apartment one has. And so um, there's been a tremendous disruption in the way we consume food and the social aspects it, it, it has. And then the rise of uh, smartphones, I think, only exacerbated that. So, you know, just the notion that we put our phones away, that we turn the TV off and we come together and we want to do something that is a a collective effort, cook and then uh, consume the food and the kind of sociality and relationality that can rise from that is very tremendous. And I think maybe that's a good good, uh, uh, point to work in. Albert Borgman. Yeah. So, uh, remind me of Borgman's book, American Ethic. What's the title? Oh, I don't have the title off the top of my head, but I did immediately think of him. As soon as you said the TV would be, it's the new hearth. uh, I think I could hear him screaming. I think I could hear him screaming in Montana from here in Texas. (laughs) So, he's got a section in that book, uh, or at least a phrase called um, the culture of the table. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, th- and I think it, it reverts back to some of the things he talked about in the previous book. But, yeah, the notion of the hearth, the fireplace, the the thing, lo- the, the locus around which uh, uh, people or a family gather, uh, you know, the fireplace, we, we gather toward it. We surround it uh, because it is generating heat. And it, it frames the sort of the room and the social atmosphere in a way that clearly the thermostat does not and cannot uh, serve as, you know, a locus, even though be it fire or, or thermostat, it, it fulfills the same function of heating your house, right? So as I said before, it seems like the television has displaced the fireplace as the hearth. But one of the things that Borgman, among other folks, uh, your friend Paul Thompson included, talk about is what the the dinner table or the dining table, how that can help reclaim some of the the hearth aspects that the fireplace once had. And so Borgman says that like a fireplace, the table gathers. In other words, it invites people. So you see a table with chairs and it's as if the technology of it is, is calling to you, come sit at this table. And that invitation is only made more enticing when there's really great food on the table that makes you want to gather around it. And so as people are gathering around uh, the table and having the food be the, the, the central point on the table, which is the locus, then I think it helps reframe and reprioritize what supper or dinner or mealtime, family time or time for friendship, what it is and what it can be. And so I, I really like that idea of, of the table uh, gathering and, um, and um, generally think of it as uh, a democratic space. You know, um, certainly the table I had 
it wasn't exactly King Arthur's round table with no head, but nonetheless, there wasn't any particular head in terms of a person having any more authority than anybody else. So it is this, uh, it is this locus that gathers, that invites people in and encourages a certain kind of relationality and sociality that, uh, you know, eating with a friend while watching a ball game or something like that maybe just does not achieve, even though there are certain, you know, aspects of that that can be uh, interesting and good and social and so forth. Sure. And, you know, even though uh, there isn't, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a democratic space, there isn't a leader maybe, there is a lot of identity that's wrapped up in that. I mean, you know, for Borgman, uh, you know, focal objects like a table and focal practices like coming together and eating or cooking, um, one of the advantages of them, one of the important things about them is that it gives you a sense of who you are and who other people are in relation to you, social roles. So, you know, it becomes pretty clear, like it's part of your identity that you are a member of this club, that these people are your friends, and that friendship is strengthened every time you literally break bread together. Um, but also it differentiates. So people will come to know the fact that you're vegan, uh, much more than something they might just remember if they'd heard it as a fact when they first met you, uh, but also know that you make really good, um, you know, whatever it is, you make this particular good dish or that that friend of yours is really good at making cocktails that are appropriate for lots of different kinds of meals or that his wife uh, makes these delicious desserts. That becomes a thing about them that other people know that you can use to sort of situate yourself in place and get a sense of who you are. And one of the problems for Borgman with devices, you know, like that thermostat, analogy you were using is that devices don't tell you who you are, right? There's, there's no skill in operating them. They're, they're magic as far as most people yeah, are concerned. You don't know how they work. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's just kind of this, you know, I don't know, I push a button and I don't know, whatever magic thing happens, happens. And then my room is the temperature I want it to be. And you know, you're not the, the best at pushing the button. So there's a, so there's a lot less, um, you know, sort of a sense of being in a place and of being and of who you are, right? If your identity can kind of get lost uh, with, you know, that device paradigm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He was the bartender. That's part of his identity. Yeah. He owned a bar. So that made it quite appropriate for him to be the one in, in charge of uh, mixing the drinks and coming up with the pairings. A couple other examples is, you know, I mentioned falafel before and the, the recipe I'm going to contribute here is going to be Egyptian fava beans because uh, my father is from uh, Cairo. And so I grew up eating a lot of, uh, and still do eat a lot of uh, Middle Eastern food. And another woman that was in the club, her family uh, was from Lebanon. So between the two of us, we decided to do uh, you know, a Middle Eastern night. So there was one example of how we were sort of uh, acting on our identity as a way to, to drive the food choice. In other cases, it was like what you were saying, more seasonal. Um, so when summertime comes around, and the tomatoes have been harvested and they're like super tasty and, and very nice, uh, we would cook a, a, a tomato dish, a kind of pasta dish from fresh tomatoes uh, because that was uh, you know what was in season. Uh, another guy in the club was from New Orleans. And so uh, we cooked a, a jambalaya uh, that uh, you know, spoke to his New, or New Orleans identity. Uh, but he wasn't really much of a cook. So luckily enough, his mom was nice enough to uh, FaceTime with us and walk us through 
uh, walk us through it step by step. Um, and him and I had actually gone down to New Orleans a couple of weeks before we did that. And so we got a few things from, uh, you know, local, lo local ingredients from stores to uh, incorporate. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 the, the identity of the Supper Club, the identity of the members of the Supper Club, and how those uh, considerations uh, partly determine what food is consumed, how it's consumed. You know, another thing we could bring up is uh, cultural convention. So I mentioned one thing about wanting to kind of look sharp and, and dress up and have a certain kind of decorum, having a certain kind of decorum regarding the, the cutlery and, and so on. And when you're eating certain kinds of food, there are certain conventions that are appropriate. So it's appropriate, culturally appropriate to eat falafel with your hands. If you're eating Ethiopian food, then you take the injera and you grab your the rest of the food uh, with it. Um, and so we're also kind of sensitive to, to observing certain cultural conventions as they relate to the particular food that we're consuming. Yeah, that's true. So what other sort of cultural uh, implications do you think there are for this? Like, uh, did you guys in your supper club try to eat, I mean, in addition to people sharing family recipes or traditional recipes, and by the way, uh, Borgman's point that that is way more inconvenient than, you know, ordering McDonald's uh, really resonates, you know, that these focal things and practices are inconvenient, but in a way that is more fulfilling than uh, mere convenience. Indeed. Um, but in addition to that, did you guys also try to experiment with other cultural foods? And if you did, was there um, you know, any sort of discussion about uh, the culture as you were doing it or listening to music or you know, what other ways did culture play a role in this? Certainly um, listening to music. So as I mentioned before, uh, I'm a DJ and I had a regular residency at the bar uh, that my friend owned. So I would try as best I could to come up with a group of records uh, to play for the evening uh, that would speak to maybe the food that we're eating or otherwise create a certain kind of background atmosphere that was conducive to the goals that we had set out for the club. And so sometimes that meant, uh, you know, soul music. Sometimes that meant, uh, I don't really like the term world music, but, you know, things like Fela Kuti and, and music from uh, Africa. Um, so we would generally do that, um, and also music from Brazil, like Tropicalia during the, uh, summer, summer months, and then something more like soul or garage music, uh, during the winter months. And those to me just seem to, to pair better. But I would say that, you know, a lot of these categories that we're outlining here, the ethical, the political, and the cultural, certainly they, they overlap. So, sure. um, um, how we're consuming the food, where it's coming from. Uh, those are as much kind of cultural decisions as they are uh, ethical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's true. And then also you can think about um, the sort of microculture that you're building within the supper club, right? That you are coming to establish norms and uh, not, I mean, some explicit rules like you were talking about in constitutionally, but also just... Uh, habits and practices and traditions in jokes, I imagine, and just sort of a, you know, a shared language to talk about this experience that you're having together. Indeed. And uh, other cultural aspects included like, uh, you know, we would have a special supper club for Thanksgiving and we really went all out. Like we really cooked way more food than we normally did. We dressed up a little nicer than we, than we normally did. 
sometimes we would tie in other things. Like one night we incorporated a film uh, in, into the supper club. Uh, and so after we ate, um, we, you know, watched a film, but then also made, made, uh, you know, movie food like popcorn and somebody brought some chocolates. Um, uh, I think one time somebody bought some, uh, oh, for the Thanksgiving, we bought, uh, like three or four different vegan pies that were locally made by, uh, not anybody that really had a store, but just someone who would make vegan pies to order for her friends. So, uh, yeah, trying to incorporate all these cultural and aesthetic uh, considerations. Um, there's lots of opportunity for it. Um, and it's just kind of a question of how, how far you want to go with the supper club. Is it just going to be about food or are you going to try to connect the food to all these other um, you know, auxiliary considerations, uh, like music, like, you know, conventions and so forth. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about building sort of like a shared little microculture there, um, did you, or would you recommend to other people if they want to try this, uh, keep it to the same people every time for the supper club, or would you occasionally bring somebody in, uh, either as just like, you know, somebody can bring a guest if their brother is visiting from wherever, or, uh, you know, maybe a rotating open spot or, you know, other sorts of ways of incorporating people? Or did you keep it, you know, fixed within this uh, group? When it began, I was, uh, I had invited a, a couple different uh, people and was trying to figure out which group of people would get along the best. And then after I figured that out, it's, it, we kind of settled into the same six or seven people. And we wouldn't have it if even, we wouldn't hold it on a given day if even one person of that six or seven couldn't make it. Oh, interesting. So we didn't necessarily have the same day each month. It was more or less once every three weeks or once every four weeks. And so it was really when everyone uh, could do it. Um, and then I also, I, I, I did have a sort of like academic version of a separate club with uh, <laughs> some uh, separate uh, academic colleagues, uh, maybe just two or three times. It wasn't as developed as the other separate club, but um, it was mainly actually when, when I knew I was going to be leaving Missouri and uh, I wanted to invite my uh, colleagues over uh, a couple times. Uh, and then the final one was to celebrate the fact that I had gotten a job uh, elsewhere. So um, it is interesting uh, when you're doing it with the same people and you guys and y'all are on the same page about what's going on and, and you've uh, determined the rules. Then it, I think it gets more comfortable as you as you go on. When you're mixing it up with people, it, I mean, it also depends on whether or not you're inviting people that you already know and whether mm -hmm. or not they know one another. Um, uh, because, you know, it's funny, we're, you know, we're talking about food and, and, and uh, the, the social aspects. And, um, you know, a lot of times when you don't know a person uh, or when you're getting to know a person, eating with them is a great way to get to know them because, People come from different places. They have different ideas. They have different political and ethical opinions, but everybody's got to eat. Uh, yep. We don't always have to eat the same things, but we all have to eat. Um, so eating brings people together in, in a unique way. At the same time, uh, food is not like a cure-all. So we can think of regular family Thanksgiving dinners that nowadays are um sort of like um 
sites of intense political debate. So people dread, or there's a lot of discussion out there about how people dread going to Thanksgiving or Christmas dinners because they are, have to encounter their you know, uncle or somebody like that, who's of varying different, uh, uh, who's of very different uh, political persuasion, and that uncle is probably going to um, antagonize them or you know do something, and probably not even the food on the table can really <laughs> save that situation. Um, but in other cases, so, so we've got this idea that like food could bring people together. But then in other situations, when other factors like a political climate or people's uh, inclination to be antagonistic uh, won't really overcome what the power of food can do, generally, food does have that kind of power uh, to, bring, to bring people together and to, um, to serve as a, as a means to get people to know one another. Yeah. I mean, there's this, there's this idea um, that I've used in some of my writing uh, about food of a boundary object that even if people are come from very different backgrounds, um, they have really different knowledge bases, they have really different value systems, um, there's an overlap. Uh, and the overlap is where you can start to communicate and build a sort of a shared vocabulary. And one overlap, as you're pointing out, is that everybody eats. And as, particularly when you're eating local food, it's something that can be talked about. Right. You can talk about that and then maybe build out from there. Now, you know, the downside, of course, is that once you have a way to start talking with people, it's possible that your value systems just aren't mutually reconcilable. And so being able to talk to each other is a good way to realize that you actually really don't like this person or really don't like what they stand for. Um, but, you know, hey, at least you're talking. Uh, but it is, I think, a good way to get to know people. Um, you know, in fact, uh, I always have my students when I teach a philosophy of food class. Uh, present uh, a particular meal that means something to them. And um, in the past, when we've been doing it in person, uh, they would actually bring some to share if they wanted. You know, I wasn't putting a financial burden on them, but usually people would choose to do that. And uh, this most recent semester, I taught it, you know, last semester virtually, I had people make presentations um, and discuss the food and why it was meaningful to them. And I've always had very good sort of responses from that because students have kind of been taught, you know, we've, we've beaten out of them uh, any self-confidence in bringing up a lot of personal kind of background and backstories uh, into conversation, academic conversations like around philosophy uh, frequently for my students, but they haven't learned yet that you can't do that about food. So if you're talking about a particular food, they're very happy to talk about all kinds of personal stories and personal resonances that this thing has about their grandparents who came to this country and brought this recipe or brought this particular uh, tool that they use for cooking it, you know, all sorts of really interesting stories. It's a great way for students to um, open up about themselves and then connect that to the things we're talking about in class. Absolutely, absolutely. It, I'm reminded I kind of forgotten about this, but I had I had also invited a couple students, like kind of my star students back in Missouri, for a little uh, supper club uh, before I uh, before I moved, uh, and it was a great way to kind of cap off the relationships I had with these students. These were kind of like my star students. They were like philosophy majors. Uh, they were in a environmental ethics class that I was teaching there, and uh, I'll say that within that class. Um, Luckily, uh, Missouri State had a community garden, and fortunately, one of my students in the environmental ethics class was like a manager of the garden. 
So we arranged a, a class to spend working in the garden uh, and it was great. So we all met there and then I kind of let um, the student kind of take the reins and tell everybody what to do because I'd never even been there before. So I, I certainly couldn't direct people. And, you know, we did everything from weeding to composting and uh, a little bit of harvesting. And, and at the end, uh, everybody got a little something to take with them, some tomatoes, some peppers, some jalapenos. And that, that was like a, a fantastic experience, not only to kind of leave the classroom and, and work, work in, uh, you know, embodied applied issues, getting our hands, you know, deep down in the soil, and then just being able to, you know, uh, Take a take a few pieces of cilantro uh, right from the ground and eat it directly, and to do something you know collectively as a class and, and then also you know uh, as a as a as a group that belongs to this particular university that um, that has this great affordance and um, uh, so students could also come to this uh, this little community garden and buy stuff I think on the weekends so that was like a that was a great experience. It was a great experience to to teach students about you know where where the food comes from, what it looks like, things grow above ground, some things uh, grow you know beneath the soil, and um, all you know various aspects of agriculture, including the not so great ones like dealing with compost or just weeding to make sure uh, you know things grow properly. Sure. So uh, to that end, um, I earlier was inventing the hypothetical of an asynchronous supper club and saying that it was a bad idea, but sometimes it's better than nothing. And while it'd be great if all the listeners to this podcast could all get together at your house and you could make something for them, uh, in lieu of that, I don't think you have enough chairs anyway, uh, maybe you can uh, talk about the recipe that you prepared uh, for this uh, conversation. Sure, certainly. Um, maybe before I do that, I, I will say that um, the Supper Club in Missouri was, uh, you know, really something uh, special that I that I that I valued very highly. And then I left uh, Springfield, Missouri, and moved to Pittsburgh to teach at Slippery Rock University. And uh, it was, you know, it was tough not having that uh, available anymore. And uh, you know, I started to make some friends here and had uh, one supper event smaller, maybe like four people. And then COVID happened. So mm. I quickly noticed the the unavailability of something like a supper club, you know, for to, to follow the proper precautions. Uh, but it's certainly an absence that I that I noticed that I think um, is, you know, very un uh, unfortunate um, among all, all the different aspects of uh, that which is unfortunate that that COVID has brought on, um, but not being able to see your friends and not being able to, uh, you know, come together and eat and do something collective has certainly been uh, has certainly been difficult. And hopefully as um, the virus subsides and the vaccinations become more available, uh, I would just really encourage people to uh, start something like a supper club up as a way to Refamiliarize yourself with your friends and with your community, and get back to some of that uh, social, uh, relational, uh, good stuff that Supper Club offers. You know yeah. what you ought to do is make a little ebook uh, with suggestions and best practices of how to start supper clubs. Yeah, that's put it on your web. Put it on your website. Ask people if they start it to send you pictures or stories about them trying it and how it went, and then count that as uh, outreach and research uh, on your CV. 
Absolutely. That's a great idea. Yeah. So like I said, um, the, my, the paternal side of my family is from uh, Cairo. And so I grew up eating a lot of Egyptian foods and the uh, recipe I have uh, uh, that I want to discuss today is uh, Egyptian fava beans, which is called fumademis. And um, it's a very simple recipe. It's almost like a bean dip. And I mean, favas are beans, but, and this is kind of like a bean dip, but basically you can either uh, cook up the fava beans from scratch in a crock pot um, with, uh, you know, water, a little bit of uh, olive oil and some salt. And then when they're ready, um, add uh, one large onion, um, two or three cloves of garlic, Middle Eastern food obviously has a, has a, always has a lot of garlic. <laughs> Um, maybe a teaspoon of, of cumin, um, salt and pepper uh, to taste, dice up uh, two medium-sized tomatoes, um, and then add uh, maybe a couple tablespoons of lemon juice. And basically, you sort of like mash down the fava beans, mix in the onions and the garlic and the seasons, and then mix in the uh, tomatoes and then kind of cook it down and that's why I say it becomes like a, a sort of like bean dip in a way. And then you can have that over something like rice pilaf, or you can have that uh, the way I grew up eating it, which is with uh, pita bread. And so it's certainly something that you can do with, with canned fava beans too. And uh, it's something that uh, doesn't really take very long to cook, but uh, is, is certainly a sort of warm uh, comfort food that is packed with, uh, you know, a lot of protein. Oh, I forgot. Parsley also goes in there. Yeah. Did you, so, uh, you would make this at your, how often would you make this at your house when you were growing up? Uh, well, I didn't grow up with my dad in the house. So mm. when I would visit him, it would pretty much be every time, uh, I, I would visit him, uh, down in Florida and I would, uh, either eat it with him or with my grandmother. And if it was at my grandmother's house, then it would be accompanied by various other kinds of Egyptian uh, food. Um, some of which, unfortunately, I can't eat because it's not vegan. <laughs> but yeah. there are other versions like, so I'm sure we both heard of uh, uh, grape leaves or dolmas. Mm -hmm. And the Greek version of that is typically vegetarian served cold. But the Egyptian version is... Uh, with meat and rice and spices served hot but just this uh the thanksgiving before last i got um my sister to help me make uh hot uh grape leaves with uh you know a beyond meat or some other kind of vegan meat and uh i was really pleasantly surprised at how good it turned out and even her kids my nephews who typically scoff when the vegan uncle comes over. <laughs> they were like pretty impressed with uh, the likeness between um, but between the vegan dolmas and, and, and the regular uh, grape leaves. So uh, it was pretty successful. I haven't made it since, but um, this is certainly making me hungry to try it again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that there's a real significance uh, to trying to come back to family recipes or childhood recipes um, and adapt them to food that reflects the values that you have now. Because, you know, like one of the values that you presumably have is, you know, weighed against other ones, is preserving tradition and connecting with your family. And, uh, 
that's one that gets overwhelmed uh, by other considerations sometimes, um, like ethical commitments to food. You know, like uh, a good example in my family are Irish style scones, which have more butter and milk than you could then really you will not believe like imagine an amount that's in that baked good it's more than whatever you're imagining right now uh and and eggs as well and so it for a long time i didn't know how and it was a real loss um you know to my mom and to me i was sad to not have the scones and she was sad to not be able to do this thing for me and so figuring out a way to come back to the same taste uh you know was uh like you know it was very meaningful for the family and also that that way then my kids get to eat their nanny's scones although vegan because you know that way we're sort of passing along both parts of uh, our family values absolutely you know that idea of tradition uh it has a you know good and kind of bad aspects to it i mean sometimes traditions are bad and we ought not continue them because they were never really good or they were always problematic uh but Sometimes they get justified, their continuance gets justified merely in the name of tradition. But then I think what we're talking about is sort of reimagining traditions or updating traditions such that we can keep the aspects of those traditions that we like, but then maybe we can uh, develop them and have them evolve uh, to be more uh, contemporary, to be more in line with our political, ethical, and cultural, um, you know, uh, wishes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Robert Figueroa writes about environmental heritage as a multi-generational conversation about what practices you continue forward and in what forms, maybe even just as a memory of something bad that used to happen, you know, versus letting something disappear entirely, um, that that is a fraught and, you know, hundreds years long conversation that you're sort of having, uh, but that that conversation is valuable. And I think the same is true for food. Indeed. And, and, and another thing with the idea of having a supper club with your, you know, with your friends is uh, me, for example, I don't have uh, maybe the strongest uh, or best relationships with all of my family members. So to eat dinner with my friends effectively becomes a kind of de facto family. Uh, and we, we see this idea play out in, in the phrase like, you know, Friendsgiving rather than Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another way to re reimagine tradition. So like the tradition of something like a Sunday dinner or one day of the week where the family makes sure that they get together and they turn the television off and they pay attention to one another. That can be carried on, but, you know, in new ways. Um, and in fact, I was participating in, in something like that like 15, 20 years ago with the group of friends I had when we were all punk rockers and it was called a punk rock dinner. And it was, you know, a Sunday night dinner with friends. Um, the food wasn't quite as good and we were definitely not meeting some of these uh, more profound considerations, but uh, you don't always have to. Just the idea of coming together with your friends and having an intimate, um, an intimate night uh, of, you know, food and drink, um, that's very meaningful unto itself, even if you're not incorporating some of the considerations that as you get older, you become more uh, concerned and attuned, concerned with and attuned to. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to read more of your work, where can they find you on the internets? Well, you can find me on, I have a website. It's uh, wordpress.com uh, forward slash Tony Chacal. I have a academia.edu page, and uh, you can find me on uh, Phil People. The first article I had published in the journal uh, Agriculture and Environmental Ethics 
uh, was called Autonomy and the Politics of Food Choice. I know, Ian, you write about autonomy too. Mm -hmm. So it's about um, thinking about uh, the kind of autonomy and power of choice that we have, uh, particularly over our food preferences, the kinds of things that um, might obstruct our uh, preferences. One of the things I discuss is like living in a, a, in a food desert or living in a cultural food desert. So you, you might be in a food desert where you don't have access to um, nutritious uh, foods within in a city a mile radius or in a rural area within a 10 mile radius. Um, or you could be in a kind of cultural food desert as I have been in the past where you can't get raw fava beans at any of the grocery stores right, and right. people don't really know what falafel is and, and this kind of thing. Yeah, and I will say to uh, to listeners who are considering, though canned beans, I'm sure will work great in Tony's recipe. It is strikingly better to use beans from dried and hydrating them yourself. It doesn't seem like it would be, but it is uh, shockingly, if hard to describe, uh, better. And if you've never cooked beans uh, from uh, you know uh, dry raw beans before, it might seem a little intimidating. But it's actually a super easy thing to do if you have a crock crock pot. Put it in the crock pot, add some water, turn it on, and you don't really even have to do anything for three or four hours. You just the biggest thing is just thinking ahead and making sure you do it in time. Because uh, if you don't, you're going to be eating some pretty crunchy beans. <laughs> well, that's back to that's back to Borgmont again. Another reason to yeah. have focal objects and focal practices is it places you in time, right? Exactly. So um, I encourage people to go check out Tony's work, uh, in particular the forthcoming ebook about uh, supper clubs that I have uh, willed into existence <laughs> by suggesting it to him. Uh, but thank you so much for participating with us, Tony. Thanks. Can I just add to that, uh, along with the recipe that I'll uh, send you and we can post, I compiled a, uh, uh, a mix of music. Uh, it's going to be called uh, Stay Hungry, Songs About Food. And um, it's about an hour and a half of music, uh, music ranging from uh, the Beach Boys and the Beatles to uh, deep cut soul music to uh, punk and post-punk tracks. And I really tried to, th there's a lot of songs out there that maybe have a certain food in the title or the word hungry or hunger in the title, like Duran Duran, Hungry Like a Wolf. Hungry Like a Wolf. That's my, in, my immediate thought when you said that. <laughs> exactly. But aren't really about food, but uh, hunger is a metaphor for love or something. But as best as I could, I really tried to pick uh, songs about uh, food directly. And so I'll send you the link, but uh, it'll be available for streaming uh, for free on my uh, Mixcloud profile. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to put that uh, in our show notes. And, you know, guys, why not think about getting some friends together, listening to the music, uh, eating some food that you feel is appropriate for that music, uh, using it as a soundtrack, and who knows, maybe uh, you can maybe a supper club will emerge out of that. Indeed, it, it's a very meaningful and rewarding uh, uh, practice. All right, thank you so much. Thank you, Ian. That was my conversation with Tony Chacal. Links are in the show notes, including a link to Tony's supper club playlist and how to find some more of Tony's work on food and other topics. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 